Well, as you know, this morning is our fourth and final church membership class. You remember we began a few weeks ago by looking first at the biblical basis for and the importance of local church membership. And second, we looked at our philosophy of ministry here at Grace Bible Church Plantation. In other words, what we believe is a church and why we believe it, and then what we do is a church and why we do it. And then last time, we looked at our mutual ministry responsibilities. That is, our responsibilities to you as a leadership. In other words, what you can expect from us as leaders here at Grace Bible Church Plantation. And then we looked at your responsibility as church members to the other members of this body, as well as to the leadership of the body. In other words, what we can expect from you as church members. Well, this morning, we're going to conclude our church membership class by looking at the issue of biblical baptism. And let me just say at the outset that there's a lot that could be said about the subject of baptism. And so time is limited this morning. And so I'm really just going to ha- try to briefly explain what baptism is. And then I want to answer two simple questions. One, who should be baptized? And then two, how should they be baptized? The first question deals with the subjects of baptism, who should be baptized, while the second question deals with the mode of baptism, how should they be baptized. And so let me first explain briefly what baptism is. You see, along with the Lord's Supper, baptism is one of the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus Christ commanded his church to practice. In the Great Commission, for example, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And how are we to make disciples? Well, he gives two instrumental participles explaining how. First, he says, by initially baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which presupposes that you've preached the gospel, they've understood the gospel, they've repented, they believe. And so the first step of making a disciple is baptizing them. That's what you do first. That's what you do initially. And then the second step is that you ongoingly teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. So according to Jesus, an essential part of making disciples is baptizing new converts in the name of the triune God. So once someone has clearly understood the gospel, has personally and genuinely repented of their sin and entrusted themselves exclusively to the person and work of Christ alone as their only hope of salvation, Jesus now commands them to be baptized. One is a way of publicly confessing Him as Savior and Lord and declaring their allegiance to Him and commitment to follow Him. Two is a way of publicly identifying themselves with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. And three is a way of identifying themselves with His body, the church. You see, baptism is essentially an initiation right into the church whereby we publicly identify ourselves with the triune God and we commit ourselves to being uncompromised followers of Jesus Christ who will be committed to learning and then living all that Christ commanded. Learning to obey all that Christ commanded, part of the Great Commission. And so baptism is essentially a symbolic representation of our dying with Christ to sin and to our old life being buried with Christ, which is what our submersion under the water really depicts, and then our rising with Christ to walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit, which is what our emergence out of the water depicts. 
And you can see that very clearly in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4, where the Apostle Paul is really dealing with the spiritual reality there that water baptism depicts. His main point there is not about water baptism, but about the spiritual reality that takes place in conversion, which is depicted in water baptism. And he says, Or do you not know that all those who have been baptized or immersed into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized or immersed into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the first thing I want to say about baptism is that it's a symbolic rite, not a salvific rite. In other words, baptism is a rite that symbolizes salvation, not a rite that confers salvation. Baptism doesn't save anyone. As Charles Spurgeon has well said, if you go into the water a dry devil, you simply come out a wet devil. Water baptism has no mystical or magical powers to save anyone or to cleanse anyone from sin. Now, some may be quick to say, yeah, but wait a minute, I thought that 1 Peter 3.21 says that baptism saves. I want to ask you to turn there with me for a minute. Let me just say a couple things initially. First, the clear teaching of Scripture is that we are justified, we are declared righteous, as we saw Wednesday night, by grace alone, through repentance and faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Second, there's a possibility that Peter may not even be referring to water baptism here. Because he says in 1 Peter 3.21, corresponding to that, that is to the flood, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now regarding this passage, John MacArthur writes, quote, Peter is teaching that the fact that eight people were in an ark, that is Noah and his family, verse 20, and went through the whole judgment and yet were unharmed is analogous to the Christian's experience in salvation by being in Christ, the ark of one's salvation. Peter is not at all referring to water baptism here, but rather a figurative immersion into union with Christ as an ark of safety from the judgment of God. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates God's acceptance of Christ's substitutionary death for the sins of those who believe. Judgment fell on Christ just as the judgment of the floodwaters fell on the ark. The believer who is in Christ is thus in the ark of safety that will sail over the waters of judgment into eternal glory. To be sure he is not misunderstood, Peter clearly says he's not speaking of water baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. In Noah's flood, they were kept out of the water while those who went into the water were destroyed. Being in the ark and thus saved from God's judgment on the world prefigures being in Christ and thus saved from eternal damnation. The word for appeal has the idea of a pledge, agreeing to certain conditions of a covenant, the new covenant with God. What saves a person plagued by sin and a guilty conscience is not some external right, but agreement with God to get into the ark of safety, the Lord Jesus, by faith in his death and resurrection, end quote. Now, let me just say at this point that even if you don't agree with MacArthur's view and the figurative use of baptism, meaning to be immersed in Christ, which is a very legitimate use of that word, the text still doesn't teach that water baptism saves, even if Peter is talking about water baptism here. Notice, Peter says, corresponding to that, that is corresponding to the fact that eight persons, Noah 
and his family who were in an ark and went through the whole judgment and yet were unharmed. He's saying corresponding to that reality, baptism now saves you. But then he's quick to clarify what he means by that. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, even if he is talking about water baptism here, he immediately and explicitly says that the passing of water over one's body in a rite doesn't cleanse anyone from sin. But what does is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is symbolized in the act of water baptism. And so again, regardless of what view you take, baptism is a symbolic rite, not a salvific rite. It is that symbolic act whereby we publicly identify ourselves with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, dying with him to sin and rising with him to walk in newness of life and committing ourselves to be uncompromised followers of him because as Matthew 28, 19, and 20 and really John 4, 1 to 2 imply one became a disciple of the person with whom his baptism was associated. When you were baptized in that day, you would be baptized into the name of a particular teacher and it meant that you were committing to following that teacher in an uncompromised fashion. To be, to be baptized in the name of God or the name of Christ meant that you were going to be an uncompromised follower of Christ and his teachings. Now that raises two obvious questions. Number one, who should be baptized? And number two, how should they be baptized? And so let's look at that first question, who should be baptized? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says that infants should be baptized by sprinkling, and in that act of baptism, the infant is regenerated and saved, cleansed from original sin. Now, obviously, that's patently unbiblical and has absolutely no scriptural basis to it, so I'm not even going to spend any time addressing that view. And then you have paedo-baptists, most often seen in Presbyterian denominations, who say that we should baptize the infants of believing parents into the new covenant, whereby they're adopted by God. And let me just say at this point that there are many men whom I greatly love and respect, like R.C. Sproul and others, who hold this view. And they are dear brothers in Christ, but they are greatly misinformed on the issue of baptism because this view is completely unbiblical. You see, when it comes to the issue... Of baptism, they've been far more informed by tradition and systematic theology than they have the careful and faithful inductive exegesis of the text of Scripture in its own historical context. And unfortunately, I don't have time this morning to give a comprehensive refutation of the Pado Baptist view, although I will refute it briefly. But I want to recommend, if you've never read Matt Waymeyer's book, A Biblical Critique of Infant Baptism. A Biblical Critique of Infant Baptism. To me, it's the finest work dealing with this issue from a textual and biblical standpoint. He's a seminary professor at Master's Seminary. But let me just briefly explain the Pado-Baptist view. You see, according to Pado-Baptist, the baptism of an infant of believing parents guarantees that the child will be forgiven and justified. Watch this. If and when they meet the conditions of the covenant, which are repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Now, the problem with this view is that the infant born into a pagan home has exactly the same conditional promise extended to him. If he repents and he believes, he too will be forgiven and justified. Therefore, regardless of whether the infant is a baptized child of believing parents, like in Pado baptist situation, or two, an unbaptized child of believing parents, like at a church like ours, or three, an unbaptized child of unbelieving parents, the same promise applies to all three. 
And so infant baptism really does nothing for the child at the end of the day, and in the end is just simply an empty rite that has no biblical basis to it. So the first problem with paedo-baptism is that it really has no ultimate significance in the end. But there are many other problems with this view as well. Let me just briefly explain a few. Second, they say that infants are baptized into the new covenant. Infants are baptized into the new covenant. The problem with this view is that it intentionally includes unregenerate and unbelieving people into a covenant which is said by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 to 34 to consist only of those who are regenerate and believing. Turn there with me to Jeremiah 31 so you can see this for yourself. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Notice we read here, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice the four distinguishing features of the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. First, he says, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. It's the promise of an internalized religion as opposed to the old covenant, which was merely external. Then notice that God says, second, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's the promise of an exclusive relationship. And so unlike the old covenant, everyone in the new covenant will truly have God as their God, and they will be his people forever. Third, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. It's the promise of saving intimacy. You see, unlike the old covenant... Everyone in the New Covenant will know God deeply, intimately, personally, experientially, and savingly. There's not going to be any unbelievers in the New Covenant like there was with the Old Covenant. The idea that word know, what? This is eternal life, that they know that what? They know you, the only true God. He's not talking about knowing facts about God. He's talking about knowing God savingly. Everyone in the New Covenant is going to know God savingly, he says. And then finally, notice, fourth, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's the promise of thoroughgoing forgiveness. And so unlike the old covenant, he says everyone in the new covenant will have all of their sins fully, finally, and forever forgiven. And God will never bring them up against them in judgment. Now that's not true of the old covenant. Because not everyone under the old covenant was a believer who had their sins forgiven. And so that's why we don't baptize unbelieving infants into the new covenant like Presbyterian churches. Infants are not believers and therefore they're not in the new covenant until they understand the gospel, repent of their sin, believe in Jesus Christ, and manifest the fruits of true saving faith and the consistent pattern of obedience of their life. And so if infants do not believe in Christ and may never believe in Christ, how can they possibly be baptized and considered the rightful recipients of the sign of the new covenant? And the obvious answer is they can't. Well, third, paedo-baptists typically say that baptism is the sign of the new covenant, which now replaces circumcision, the sign of the old covenant. Now, there are several problems with this. The first problem is that baptism, one, is never 
said to be the sign of the new covenant. In fact, if anything, the Lord's Supper would be the sign of the new covenant, not baptism, because Jesus said in Luke 22.20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, meaning this is the sign and symbol of the new covenant ratified by my blood. Second problem with that view, that baptism replaces circumcision, is that the sign of circumcision was specifically administered to the male reproductive organ, and as such was a fitting symbol of the Abrahamic promises which were passed on from generation to generation by physical birth and natural descent. In contrast, the physical act of water baptism, and even more so the baptism of females, is not able to symbolize the seed promises which are so central to God's covenant with Abraham. The third problem with this view that baptism replaces circumcision is that the passages that paedo-baptists appeal to such as Romans 4, 11, and 12, Colossians 2, 11 and 13, simply don't teach baptism as a replacement of physical circumcision. In fact, Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, isn't even referring to physical circumcision. It's referring to spiritual circumcision. The text there refers to a circumcision made without hands, Paul says. The fourth problem with this view that baptism replaces circumcision is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You see, in Acts 15, it's recorded that some men from Judea began to teach that a man must be circumcised in order to be saved, Acts 15.1. Well, in response, Paul and Barnabas debated these men, Acts 15.2a, and then the apostles and elders decided to meet in Jerusalem to settle the issue. You see that in verse 2b to verse 6 of that chapter. And as the leadership in Jerusalem met to discuss whether it was necessary for believers to be circumcised, Peter addressed this question in a speech in verses 7 through 12. James addressed it in another speech in verses 13 to 21. And the apostles and elders addressed it in a formal letter in verses 22 to 29. But nowhere in these 23 verses did any of them breathe a single breath about baptism. Now, the objection here is obvious. If baptism had replaced circumcision the way that paedo-baptists say it does, then why didn't one of them simply just say, of course you don't need to be circumcised, because as we all know, baptism has replaced circumcision. But they didn't say that because baptism doesn't replace circumcision. But not only is the paedo-baptist view problematic, one, because infant baptism really doesn't signify anything. Number two, because unbelieving infants can't possibly be baptized into the new covenant, which is a covenant restricted exclusively for believers. Number three, because nowhere does the Bible ever teach that baptism replaces circumcision. But number four, and more importantly, there is not one single command in all of scripture to baptize an infant. Not one. I challenge you to search the scriptures. You will search in vain. You won't find one. And then fifth, there is not one single example of, in Scripture of an infant being baptized. Not one. Again, I challenge you to search the Scripture. You'll search in vain. And so not only is infant baptism not mandated anywhere in the Scripture, it's not even modeled anywhere in the Scripture either. Nowhere is it prescribed and nowhere is it even described. Now someone might be quick to say, yeah, but what about the five household baptisms recorded for us in the New Testament? They clearly model infant baptism. Do they? See, this argument is built on two faulty assumptions. The first faulty assumption is that the word household must mean every single individual in the household without exception. But a careful study of that word will show that that's not the case. For example, in 1 Samuel 
121, the text says, Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But the very next verse says, Hannah did not go up. And so clearly all his household didn't include every single individual. It included most of the individuals, but Hannah was not included in all the household. The second faulty assumption is that infants were indeed present in these households and were baptized along with the others. And yet as you carefully study each passage, no such evidence is in the text. And so let's briefly look at each of these five household baptisms so that you can see this for yourself, so you can deal with this argument once and for all. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. The first instance of a household baptism in the household of Cornelius. You see, as the apostle Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius, his relatives and his close friends, verse 44 says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening, verse 44. And they spoke in tongues and exalted God, verse 45 and verse 46. In other words, signs that they had repented in response to the gospel and that they were saved. At this point, Peter said in verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? He's talking about Acts 2 when they received the Spirit at Pentecost. Mm -hmm. And so it was those who had received the gift of the Holy Spirit who were baptized, verse 48. Not those who received the gift of the Holy Spirit plus their infant children, just those who had received the Holy Spirit. And as Greg Welty says, quote, unless we're willing to posit the reception of the Spirit and speaking in tongues for unbelievers, we must conclude that this was a household conversion on the part of the individuals who composed it, and for that reason it was also a household baptism, end quote. In other words, Acts 10, verses 1 to 48, is an example of believer's baptism, not an example of infant baptism. Only those who heard the word, received the word, had the Holy Spirit come upon them and evidenced that by speaking in tongues and praising God at that point in redemptive history, were baptized. We'll look over at Acts 16 for the second household baptism. Here you see the household of Lydia. Notice Acts 16:14, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening... And the Lord opened her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And while verse 15 indicates that both Lydia and her household were baptized, it doesn't say anything regarding whether or not her household believed in Christ or whether or not her household included any infants. And so at best, this is an argument from silence for Pado-Baptist, not an argument from the text. Now, if I were pressed to infer from Acts 16, 14, and 15 whether or not Lydia had any infant children, I would say the evidence in the passage itself suggests the probability that she was unmarried and did not. First, because no husband is mentioned here. Second, because she carried on a vocation of selling purple fabric, whereas if she was married and had children, her husband would have likely worked while she stayed at home to care for the children. Third, because she had traveled hundreds of miles from Thyatira to conduct business in Philippi. Highly unlikely if she's got infant children with her. And fourth, because 
She apparently felt the freedom to invite Paul and the other men to stay in the house, which she refers to as my house. I can't be dogmatic on this point, but Acts 16, 14, and 15 seems to paint the picture of an unmarried woman with no infant children. If this is indeed the case, the household would have included other relatives and or Lydia's hired servants instead of unbelieving infants. Well, look over further down in Acts 16, verses 31 to 34, for the third example of household baptisms, the, the household of the Philippian jailer. Remember the story? While imprisoned in Philippi, Paul and Silas get thrown in jail. They're singing praises in the midnight hour ultimately preached the gospel to the jailer who guarded them. And although it's true that the Philippian jailer's entire household was baptized after he believed in Christ, Acts 16, 31-33, the very same passage also indicates that his whole household believed in Christ as well. Look at verse 34. And he brought them, that is the jailer, brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, watch this, having believed in God with his whole household. In other words, the whole household believed and therefore only those who believed were baptized. And so taken at face value, the account of Acts 16, 31-34 sets before us a hearing, believing, rejoicing household that received baptism. Again, a baptism which fits much better with believer's baptism than with infant baptism. Well, turn with me to Acts 18 for the fourth household baptism, this time the household of Crispus. The text says there, And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, watch this, with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now notice, all three parties mentioned in this verse, Crispus, the household of Crispus, and the many Corinthians are explicitly said to have believed. There's simply no indication that anyone was baptized in Acts 18.8 other than those who came to faith in Christ. And a fifth and final household baptism is the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul states there that he baptized the household of Stephanus. But the interesting thing is that later on in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, Paul describes the household of Stephanus as the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, they were the first converts in Achaia. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 16, 15 also states they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. In other words, the members of the household were not only baptized, they were also converted and had worked at serving other believers. And so the entire household of Stephanus was baptized because the entire household of Stephanus was saved, which provides yet another example of believers' baptism. And so in four of the five household baptisms, it's clear that everyone who was baptized first believed in Christ. In the case of Lydia the fifth, that of Lydia and her household, the probability is that no infants were involved, but the passage simply does not say one way or the other. What is clear is that the consistent pattern throughout the New Testament is that only those who professed faith in Christ were baptized. In fact, there are references to 19 different parties being baptized in the New Testament. And only with Lydia's household is there any doubt that those who were baptized first made a profession of faith. And if you want those references, I can give them to you afterwards, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. And so, believer's baptism is the clear pattern throughout the New Testament. We see this first with John's baptism. Look with me at Matthew chapter 3. 
Now, obviously, John's was a preparatory baptism, a baptism of repentance. That's the first mention of baptism in the New Testament. This is Matthew's record of John the Baptist's ministry, and of course, this was before the church began at Pentecost, but there can be little doubt that John's practice of baptism influenced the apostles. In fact, I mean, after all, some of them had been followers of John before they became followers of Jesus, according to John 1, 35-40. So notice that Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2 says this, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, watch this, as they confessed their sins. And so we can clearly see that John preached repentance and he only baptized those who confessed their sins and sought God's forgiveness. And so it was only those who had repented inwardly who could be baptized outwardly. In fact, John rejected the Pharisees and Sadducees who came to him to be baptized in verses 7 and 8 because he didn't believe their repentance was genuine, evidenced by their lack of fruit. These religious leaders had the right family background. They say, look, we have Abraham for our father, verse 10. But John was utterly unimpressed. Because baptism was not based on who your parents were, but based on personal repentance from sin. We see the same thing in Jesus' instructions. See, although John 4, verses 1 and 2, does tell us that Jesus' disciples also baptized as John had, the Gospels say nothing specific about Jesus' practice of baptism until the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And you're all familiar with it. Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now this instruction tells us something important about what the apostles were, or whom the apostles were to baptize. You see, the Greek word for disciple in the command make disciples, Matthew 28 there, was the word methetes. Now, methetes was a learner, that is a follower of a specific teacher, someone who adhered to a teacher's instruction in a devoted manner. And the uses of methetes in the Gospel of Matthew reveal that a disciple of Christ was one, someone who eagerly learned Christ's teachings. Two, someone who confessed Christ before men. You see that in Matthew 10, 24 to 33. Three, someone who placed his relationship with Christ above his family relationship. Matthew 12, 40. Who are my brothers and sisters? Those who keep my commandments. Those who obey me. Someone who denied himself for of his own goals, desires, and expectations to follow Christ's goals, desires, and expectations. Matthew 16, 24. Someone who would do anything for Christ, even face persecution or death, Matthew 16, 24. Someone who obeyed Christ's commands, Matthew 16, 24. And so, it was believers in Christ who were committed followers of Christ that the apostles were to baptize according to Jesus there, when you actually study what a disciple was. Make disciples by baptizing them. Well, what's a disciple? A lifelong lover, learner, and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who is un compromised and unashamed in their allegiance to him. They're a believer. And let me just say that John and Jesus' pattern was the practice adopted by the apostles as well in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. 
first example of this is Peter's reference to baptism in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. You're all familiar with it, but in Acts 2, 37-39, we read, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Now with the words repent and be baptized, Peter established a precedent that the apostles adhered to throughout the book of Acts. That is, personal repentance from sin had to precede water baptism. The apostles' practice was the same as John the Baptist had been. Repentance, not who your parents were, was the prerequisite for being baptized. Now let me just say at this point that the words of Acts 2.39, the promise for you and your children, are sometimes used to support infant baptism. Some believe this statement means parents and their infant children are to be baptized. However, a careful reading of the text eliminates this interpretation. First, the promise Peter referred to was not baptism, and the context proves that conclusively. The promise was the reception of the Holy Spirit at salvation. You see, even though Peter does not specify the content of the promise here in this verse, the meaning was clear to his original hearers, for they had already re- he had already referred to this promise several times in the earlier part of his sermon. Verse 17, I, God, will pour forth my Spirit. Verse 33, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 38, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that accompanies him. And then in Acts 2.39, Peter identifies three groups of individuals who are the recipients of this promise. First, he says you. Second, he says your children. And third, he says all who are far off. But notice carefully that Peter doesn't stop there. Instead, he qualifies all three groups with this clause, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. It's referring to the effectual call of God, calling an individual, summoning them effectually unto faith and salvation. In other words, how many of you has God promised the Holy Spirit to? As many as the Lord shall effectually call to himself. To how many of your children has God promised the Holy Spirit to? As many as the Lord shall effectually call to himself. To how many of those who are far off has God promised the Holy Spirit to? To as many as the Lord shall effectually call to himself. God has promised to give the Holy Spirit to those whom he effectually calls and draws to himself in saving faith. This includes Peter's immediate hearers, you, succeeding generations, your children, and even for Gentiles in distant places, all who are afar off. And so Peter promised three categories of people, adults, their children, and Gentiles, those far off, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise was extended to all three groups on the same basis. Listen carefully. Personal repentance, verse 38. The children or descendants of those listening to Peter were welcome to participate in the same blessing as their parents, the reception of the Holy Spirit, if they too repented. The verse says nothing about infant baptism. Instead, it was Peter's assurance that the Holy Spirit was available to all who repent. And notice Peter's order of events is very clear here. He said in verse 38, repent and then be baptized. And then after his declaration in verse 39, Peter continues by exhorting the people of Israel to repent and be saved, verse 40. 
Verse 41 says, Those who have received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, 41-42a. Now what strikes me here is Luke's description of those who were baptized. Notice verse 41, that it was those who had received his word. Not those who had received his word in their children, just those who had received his word, period. And so really what you see here is just a fulfillment of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20, where Jesus essentially said, Go, preach the gospel, and those and those alone who understand the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel, are to be baptized in the name of the triune God and then incorporated into the life of the local church so that they can be taught to obey all that Christ commanded. Only those who repented in response to the gospel were baptized. And so rather than supporting infant baptism, Acts 2, 38-39 established a requirement for baptism that excluded the possibility that infant baptism was practiced by the apostles. Peter said that for parents and their children, personal repentance must precede baptism. But that raises the question, did the apostles follow the pattern of baptism outlined in Acts 2, 38-39? Well, let's consider the rest of the book of Acts. The next mention of baptism in Acts comes in Luke's account of Philip's ministry in Samaria. Notice in Acts 8, verse 12, the next mention of baptism here in Acts, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. And so again, Luke is careful to emphasize the sequence of events in Samaria. He says, after they believed Philip's preaching... Then they were baptized. And so belief in Christ preceded baptism. Luke also said in verse 12 that Philip baptized men and women alike. Mm -hmm. Infants are notable here only in their absence. You see, if baptizing infants was a New Testament practice, this would have been the place for Luke to say Philip baptized men, women, and infants. However, when one considers the apostolic requirement of repentance... Established by Peter in Acts 2.38, the absence of infants is no surprise. The same sequence, belief, and then baptism was followed in the other baptism is of Acts as well. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.35-38. Paul in Acts 22.12-16. And then the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus in Acts 19.1-7. Peter's precedent... Repentance must precede baptism was carefully observed by the early church throughout the book of Acts. So question number one, who should be baptized? Only genuine born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only those who have heard the gospel, understood the gospel, personally repented of their sin, and trusted Christ alone as their only hope of salvation. And are now committed to following Christ in an uncompromised fashion. Committed to obeying all that Christ commanded. Those and those alone are to be baptized, Jesus says. And the book of Acts says. And really John the Baptist says. But that leads us now to question number two. How should they be baptized? In other words, what is the mode of baptism? Is it sprinkling? Is it immersion? Is, or is it some other mode? Well, here at Grace Bible Church Plantation, we would say that the Bible is clear that baptism is only for believers, and it's by immersion in water. There's three main reasons why we hold that view. The first one is based on the lexical meaning of the word baptize. In classical Greek, the word was used of the sinking of ships. They were completely submerged underwater. And in the New Testament, there's two verbs describing the reality of baptism, bapto and baptizo. Bapto occurs only four times 
And it always means to dip, as in dipping a piece of cloth into dye. Baptizo is an intensive form of bapto. It's used many times in the New Testament. It always means to dip completely, to immerse, or even to drown, not to sprinkle. Second reason why we believe that believers' baptism is by immersion and not is not only the lexical meaning of the word baptized, but also because of the fact that water is never said to be baptized on someone, i.e. sprinkled or dabbed into someone's head, but always someone is baptized in water, into water. That's clear from the New Testament right from the outset. For example, Matthew 3 begins by describing the ministry of John the Baptist and verse 6 notes that people were coming out to him and being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Not by the Jordan River, but in the Jordan River. Now obviously, if they were being baptized in the river, they were being immersed. You don't go down into a river if you're just getting a piece of water dabbed on your head. You don't go through the whole process of getting all wet. You can do that by the riverside. In fact, John 3.23 says that John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim. Why? Because there was much water there. Well, why did he need much water? Because he had multitudes of people who needed to be immersed and submerged in the water. Even in the baptism of Jesus, we read in Mark 1.10, immediately coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. See the same thing in the parallel account in Matthew 3.16. You only come up out of water because you've gone down into water. In Acts 8, Philip preached Christ and the Ethiopian eunuch believed. As a result of his faith, he said in verse 36, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Therefore, verse 38 says, They both went down into the water and he was baptized. Now, they wouldn't have gone down into the water if he only needed to be sprinkled. So again, we see baptism by immersion because water is never said to be sprinkled on someone but rather someone is baptized in or into water. A third and final reason why we believe believers' baptism is by immersion is because only immersion can accurately portray and depict the reality that baptism is meant to picture. See, at the moment of conversion, the believer is spiritually united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so going down into the water symbolizes death and burial, the believer symbolically being co-crucified with Christ and his old sinful life being buried with Christ? Well, coming up out of the water symbolizes new life. The believer rising symbolically with Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. As any student of the Old and New Testament knows, God likes to teach with symbols, pictures, illustrations, parables, and analogies, and baptism is one of his finest. And so in summary, who should be baptized? Genuine born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have heard the gospel, understood the gospel, and personally repented of their sin and trusted Christ alone to save them. Two, how should they be baptized? By immersion in water. Why? One, because of the lexical meaning of the word baptism or baptize. It means to immerse. Two, because people in the New Testament are always said to be baptized in water, not by water. Three, because baptism symbolizes the believers dying with Christ to sin and rising with him in the power of the Spirit to walk in newness of life. And so if you're here and you've not been baptized as a believer by immersion, we would call you to be obedient to Christ and his word and to do that very thing. And if that's you, feel free to speak to me afterwards and because that's one of the requirements of membership. And if you have been baptized by immersion as a believer, praise God for the privilege and blessing of publicly testifying to the reality of Christ and his grace in your life and publicly 
confessing him as Lord and committing to follow him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this brief look at the doctrine of biblical baptism. I thank you for the clarity of your word on this particular issue. There seems to be so much confusion, and yet your scripture seems to be so patently clear. We're thankful for illumining our minds to understand it and for humbling our hearts to embrace it by faith and to walk in obedience to it. I pray that you would continue to sanctify us, that our lives would be a true reflection of having been baptized as a devoted follower of you, that our lives would reflect that, that we are unashamed and uncompromised in our allegiance to you, devoted to learning to obey all that you've commanded. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right.